So based on our best technology, there's sort of a growing idea among scientists like Brian Cox and others that when you look at the night sky, every star you see has some sort of planet orbiting it. Now, the vast majority of those planets are utterly inhospitable to life. They're either too close to their sun or they're too far from their sun. Because in order to have life, you have to have, you have to be in this, what they call the Goldilocks zone, this distance that's very, you know, the right distance from the sun. And even being that close doesn't guarantee life. In fact, Mars is in the Goldilocks zone in, in our solar system, but it doesn't have a magnetic field that sort of reflects uh, radiation. It doesn't have an ozone layer to keep in the right temperature. You see, God has so perfectly designed Earth, our planet, that's the right distance from the sun. It has all the chemicals for life, hydrogen, carbon, oxygen. We have an ozone layer. And even so much that our, uh, our big brother, Jupiter, so big, that sort of meteors that would end life are often sucked into Jupiter like a vacuum. It's interesting because scientists like Brian Cox, despite devoting their whole life to finding life on other planets, on other galaxies, they comment on how rare life is on Earth, yet they still don't believe in a creator God. I'm assuming you being here at 2.30 on a Saturday in the Middle East, you believe in a creator God. And as we start to look at his creation and, and see how beautiful and wise and intricate he put together the universe, I think it's easy to uh, forget that he also does that in history. So today as we prepare for Christmas, we're continuing to look back at the Old Testament. And today we're going to do a, a flyover, as we're used to seeing here, a flyover of the book of Isaiah specifically the messianic, prophet, the messianic prophetic passages. And as we study Isaiah, and as I was reading through Isaiah, what absolutely struck me is the same God, the same creator that made everything we see from nothing, ex nihilo, created everything in the universe, that same God that created the earth with these perfect elements of life, that filled that life with Adam and Eve, who were hit, made in his image, who were to represent him and to be over creation, who were put in a perfect garden, that same God, who by his knowledge and wisdom intelligently designed the universe, that same God has intelligently designed human history. Let me say that again. So the same God who, by his knowledge and wisdom, intelligently designed the universe, that same God has written human history for his glory through our redemption. So take a look at this slide behind me. You may, many of you may have seen this slide. It kind of bounced around the internet. But uh, these Chris Harrison and Christopher Rommeld, if I said that right, they designed this in 2007. And they wanted to kind of show the beauty of the 63,000 cross-references in the Bible. So this is all the times the Old Testament or the New Testament refers to one another or connects to one another. And each of the colors, they represent the distance of those connections. So at the bottom, this white, that's every chapter in the Bible, Old Testament, New Testament, how long the chapter is. 
and all the many thousands and thousands of references where the Bible refers to itself. So if you just look at this, we see God does not leave history up to chance. Last week, Steve preached on, in the beginning, Adam and Eve's sin, uh, in their curse, God prophesies, Genesis 3.15, what is to come. He has designed history to his good purposes. So fair warning, I do apologize. We are going to read a lot of poetic Bible today. So if you only hear one thing, if you only hear one thing, hear this. God has designed history to redeem his covenant people, and Jesus has always been at the center of the plan. Because God has designed history for our good, we can have true peace in Jesus. Because God has designed history for our good, we can have true peace in Jesus. So if you have your Bibles or phones, please turn them to Isaiah 1. Uh, my name is Josh Wall. I'm an elder here at Grace Church. Thanks, Vinny, for reading our passage. Let me pray for us before we get started. Father, Lord, we do come to you and we submit ourselves to your sovereign good. We know that what you want for us is far better than what often we want for us. So we do pray today that you would reveal uh, your truth in your son. And in Jesus' name, amen. So in Luke 24, we see that Jesus refers to the Old Testament in kind of a colloquial way. He said, the law and the prophets. And I think it's easy often if we kind of think in those two terms. We have Old Testament, which is kind of history, and then there's also these prophecies. But that's not the case. As we've seen in the infographic, the Old Testament has many different genres, history, poetry, law, and these prophetic books. And prophecies of Jesus are not just found in the prophets. They're found all throughout the entire Bible, in the law, in the Psalms, and they are particularly saturated in the prophets. So today we're going to look at Isaiah. It is very poetic. We could spend whole sermon series on the passages that we'll look at today. But again, because we're doing this flyby, we're going to just focus on the overall meaning of these kind of texts rather than examining every single word. We're going to look at three major sections. You can imagine uh, this is like a Christmas play with three acts, okay, three major sections. The first section is the first two chapters of the book. So Isaiah opens with Israel and Judah in political turmoil. Not so different than what we see in the news today. Isaiah, the man, the prophet, he begins his ministry at the end of King Uzziah's death. King Uzziah reigned for 55 years. He was a good king, at least from a military standpoint. And his reign brought flourishing for the people. When he died, however, it created a, a power vacuum. Israel and Judah and the neighboring kingdoms began to uh, be in turmoil. The problem in Isaiah was not the armies that surrounded Israel. The problem is that God's people didn't look like God's people. Their problem is that their hearts were far from God. They were doing what was right in their own eyes. They were looking less and less like the nation that was supposed to be set apart, less and less like the nation, the nation that is meant to show and display what God is like to the other nations, and they were looking more and more like the nations around them. 
Isaiah 5.4 kind of represents the book. And Isaiah says, Israel is like a vineyard God planted. God chose a fertile hillside. He cleared it of stones. He planted the choicest vines. He built a watchtower. And despite God giving the perfect conditions for growth, Israel only yielded bad fruit. So act one, act one, first two chapters. Peace comes when God is on the throne and his people hear his word. Peace comes when God is on the throne and his people hear his word. Isaiah opens with a plea to Israel. We see God as a loving father longing for his children to turn back to him. As we said, Israel is living a double life. On one hand, they're continuing to participate in the ritual sacrifices that were passed down for Moses. But just because they were participating doesn't mean their hearts were in it. No, they were living completely contrary to God's will. Religion had become a parade for them. They are getting dressed up. They're publicly doing what they're supposed to do, but their hearts are far from God. God is not their father. I'm sorry, God is not a father that looks the other way. He's not a father that ignores his children as they wreck their lives. He does not ignore their sinfulness. Nor does he ignore, again, them blaspheming his name among the nations. God has a plan to hold Israel accountable for their sin. First, God reminds them that he chose them. He raised them. Instead of living a life that reflects him, they are corrupt and laden with sin. God warns them as they continue to rebel that they are inviting punishment onto their cities. Isaiah even tells them that their sacrifices cannot please God if their hearts are far from him. Their offerings are an abomination to him. They burden God. He doesn't listen to their prayers. But like a loving father, God is patient with them. You can hear his patience. So Isaiah 1, 18 to 20. Isaiah 1, 18 to 20. Come now. Let us reason together, says the Lord. The new living says, let us argue this out. Come now. Let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat of the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be eaten by the sword. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. So here is God, patient, not quick to anger reminding the Jewish people that they are at a crossroads. He is urging them to obey his good commands, not because they're missing out on what the fun of the other nations, but because he is promising them eternal flourishing and happiness. This is true for us today. When we are living lives contrary to God, he speaks to us through his word and his church, and he is lovingly trying to call us home. I mean, look at God's promises right here. If Israel repents and turns back to God, they'll be saved. God will make their sins white as snow. But if they don't, they will face terrible purging judgment. One path promises peace and the other promises war. Like Adam, they can stay in the garden under God's protective hand 
or they will be cast out of his presence. We see in chapter 2 a big shift. We're no longer in present day Israel, but we are in the far future. God knows that even though the nation as a whole is rebelling, there's a small group of people, a remnant, who are still faithful to his word. And since God writes history, he knows that no matter his warnings, no matter the words of the prophets, no matter the fact that Israel will not repent. We see this in two, chapter 2 to chapter 4. Israel is destined to choose the path of the sword. But before they do, God reminds this remnant, this small group of people, that they can trust him, that this is not the end. So Isaiah 2, 2 through 5. Isaiah 2, 2 through 5. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of mountains and shall be lifted high above the hills. So let's pause there for a second. Again, a lot of poetic language. This here is a symbolic mountain. Isaiah wants us to see that there is nothing higher than God here. Israel and the other nations, they have idols. They have competing high places in their hearts. In this life, we all elevate the things in our hearts above God. But in the end, God's mountain is above all of them. In the end, there is no competing high places in our hearts. There is no idols fighting for our attention. So let's start at verse 2 again. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and all the nations shall flow to it. All the nations are treasuring God. They are flowing to it like a river. Verse three, and many people shall come and say, come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. Again, poetry, we know this is not a literal pilgrimage because there's nowhere in Christianity or Judaism that requires a pilgrimage. Christianity does not have a hajj. This is God's people telling others, hey, look, look at God. Listen to his word. Walk in his paths. The Great Commission is an echo of this. It says, Go to all the nations, make disciples, baptizing them, teaching them to obey all that God has commanded. Verse 4. And he shall judge between the nations. He shall decide disputes for many people, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. O house of Jacob, come let us walk in the light of the Lord. So we know from Genesis 12 that God first makes a covenant with Abraham, that through his descendants, all the nations of the world will be blessed. After God rescues Abraham's descendants from Egypt, with Moses, he makes a new covenant, a covenant that you could say builds on the Abrahamic covenant. God covenants with Israel by giving Moses God's law. By obeying God's law, Israel would be set apart, distinct from the other nations, 
and they would experience this Garden of Eden-like flourishing. And the call to be set apart wasn't just for the priests. It was for everyone. It was for the whole nation. God would bless Israel, and in turn, Israel would bless the nations. They would show the nations what God is like, and all the nations would be blessed. Isaiah 2 is a fulfillment of all of those promises to Israel. God is on his throne. He's on the highest of mountains, the mountain of the Lord. All the nations are saying, come, let us go up to the mountain. Let us hear from God. They are affirming that God's ways will bring them joy and happiness and flourishing. And look at verse 4, because this is what we're going to see, this kind of thread throughout all the passages today. God shall judge between nations, and they will beat their plowshares into hooks. God's justice is real justice. The world we inhabit today is full of all kinds of systemic injustices. Those injustices lead to conflict, to war, to infighting. And here the nations no longer at war. The nations are turning their weapons of war into weapons of farming, into tools of farming. When God is on his throne and people obey his law, the whole society flourishes. Here, the nation of Israel and the nations surrounding them are no longer spending millions and millions and millions of dollars on military weapons of war. Instead, they are feeding people. As I said it before, Isaiah is showing us that God has designed history for our good and Jesus is at the center. Because how do we go from chapter 1, where Israel is surrounded by their enemies, to chapter 2, where Israel, where Zion is on a high hill, and the king of Zion is above all the other nations? And the answer is in the same way that through the failure of Adam and Eve, God prophesied hope in a child, so too, through Israel's judgment, God prophesies a hope in a child. So flip a few chapters to Isaiah 7. Flip a few chapters to Isaiah 7, verses 14 and 16. Act 2. Act 2. Peace comes through a child who will grow up to be a shepherd king. So as we move through the book of Isaiah, we move to a new king, Ahaz. Ahaz sits on David's northern throne in in Judah, and as king, he is called to lead them as God's nation. Now, Ahaz is becoming and growing increasingly fearful because of Syria. And instead of turning to a loving God, Ahaz decides to make a covenant with the Assyrians. These are past enemies of Israel. And as soon as Ahaz makes that pact, Syria moves its troops kind of to this, uh, they camp in the highlands of Ephraim, which is about a day's journey from Israel, from, um, from Judea. Again, history is no surprise to God. He's in control of it. We see in verse 1 that Isaiah already prophesies that they won't make it to Jerusalem. And even though Ahaz has put his faith in this other army of God, God still offers Ahaz a chance to come back to him. Isaiah tells Ahaz, God is is saying, ask for anything. Ask for the the deepest of depths or the highest of highs. Ask for anything. Let God give you a sign that he is more trustworthy 
than the army, the, the Assyrians. But Ahaz refuses. He doesn't want a sign. And what we see is his refusal shows that he didn't believe. We see that crisis, crises often reveal our faith. So even though Ahaz wouldn't ask for a sign, even though he didn't want a sign, Isaiah prophesies a sign. Verse 14. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgins shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. He shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse evil and choose good. So even though Ahaz refused the sign, God will one day give a miraculous sign. A virgin, a, virgin, a maiden, will give birth to a son, a child not formed by some kind of biological procreation, but a child that was formed like Adam in the garden. This child's name will be Emmanuel, God with us. And unlike Ahaz, who is refusing to follow God, but trusting in these foreign armies, and unlike Israel, who refuses to be set apart, but they want to look like all the other nations, and unlike Adam, who disobeyed, this child will choose good over evil. So flip a few more pages, Isaiah 9. Isaiah 9, flip a few more pages. Isaiah 9. Verses 6 and 7. As you can imagine how the story goes, Assyria doesn't save King Ahaz. Assyria double-crosses him, and they oppress Judah. God judged Israel by allowing Assyria to desecrate Judah for the sins of Ahaz and for the sins of the people. And in Isaiah 9, there is a spiritual gloom, like a spiritual fog, that flooded over the people of Israel. And soon God will be a light through that fog. Verse 6, 9, 6. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders. So he has a legitimate right to rule. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it, to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. So a child is born, a son of Eve, a son that is born of a virgin who refuses evil and chooses good, a son that will rule on David's throne a son that will rule with justice and peace, a son that will rule and have no end, a wonderful counselor, a mighty God, an everlasting father, the prince of peace, all the blessings of Abraham coming through the son of David. I think we can, you know, put ourselves in Israel's sandals for a bit. Their nation has been divided by their enemies in war. But there is this sort of future son of David. His kingdom will have no end, and he will never be conquered, right? This idea, this idea is in Isaiah 9 is, is consistent among all the other prophets. Amos, Hosea, Micah, they all have similar prophecies of this unending Davidic kingdom of peace. 
In Amos 9, 11 through 15, God promises that a day will come when the mountain will drip, the mountain will drip with sweet wine because the cities will be rebuilt and all the vineyards and all the gardens will be restored. Hosea 3, 5 says, In the latter days, Israel will return to God. They will return and submit to their king, and they will learn to fear the Lord and his goodness. In Micah 5, 2 through 5, not only will this son of David come out of Bethlehem and govern in peace, but he will be a shepherd king who protects and cares for his kingdom. So again, if we stop right here, we might even sympathize with, or, I mean, at least you can see why the Pharisees and the Sadducees were so wrong about Jesus. They thought the Messiah would set up a kingdom that had no end. They expected and they wanted a geopolitical figure, a man of war, a conqueror. The problem they have in the Gospels is the same problem they had in the Old Testament. They want to look like all the other nations. Other nations conquered them, and if they just had a better king or a, a better army, they would have peace. But of course, God always had a better plan. God is not afraid of the nations. He holds the nations in his hand like a drop of water. He is not afraid of foreign kings. He can turn the heart of a king like a river. So how does this child establish a kingdom that has no end? Turn all the way back, all the way back to Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53. This is Act 3. How does this child establish a kingdom that has no end? Act 3. Peace does not come through making war against Israel or even making war against God's enemies. Peace comes through making war on God's suffering servant. Isaiah 53, 2. For he grew up before him like a young plant, and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look upon him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. We see here that before Jesus was ever crucified, he carried our sorrows day after day when he saw sheep without a shepherd. Verse 4. Surely he has borne our griefs. He has carried our sorrows, yet we esteem him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own ways. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So not only did Jesus physically carry our sins, but he emotionally carried our sins. We see in verse 7, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep, that is before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. 
by oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for this generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people, and they made a grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. This innocent suffering servant, this innocent man, was an innocent lamb that was killed. Verse 10, and so important to all of this, verse 10. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquity. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sins of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. In the same way that God had meticulously designed the universe, he has meticulously designed history. Only God's perfect justice could be satisfied by God's perfect lamb. Only God's perfect mercy would send his son to die the death that we deserve. From Genesis 3.15 to the cross, the Old Testament has prophesied of this child of Eve, this son of David, the Son of Man, and we know the Son of God. It is the will of the Lord to crush Jesus so that all the nations are welcome to come to the mountain of the Lord. They are welcome at his table. They are welcome in his presence. Jesus, Emmanuel, is God with us. He is the Prince of Peace. And through Jesus, we have peace with God and we have peace with one another. Three implications for us today. Three implications. Number one, Christmas is the time of year that we celebrate God's promised child. A child who was born of a virgin out of Bethlehem, a sign that God's kingdom has come. Jesus was always the plan from the beginning of time to be the intercessor between God and man. Through his death and through his burial and his resurrection, he intercedes for us. Jesus' birth, Christmas, Jesus' death and Jesus' resurrection is the center, it is the apex of all of human history. All of the Old Testament is looking forward to this child that is going to be born. And all of the New Testament, we look forward to Jesus returning and once again establishing a kingdom that has no end a kingdom that our idols are left in the old kingdom, an idol, a kingdom that we can go up to his holy hill and he will judge the nations with equity. All of the idols of our hearts are erased in the beauty and the majesty of Jesus. Number two, no matter how scarlet your sins are, Jesus can make them white as snow. No matter how scarlet your sins are, Jesus can make them white as snow. 
Maybe you're here today and you are just wrecked by your sin. No one has to tell you that you're a sinner because you are very aware of your struggles. See here, Christ left heaven, became a a baby, a child, grew up so that one day he could suffer for your sins. If you have not put your faith in Jesus, the weight of your sins are like scarlet stains. The guilt of your sins are like red, scarlet. If you come to Christ because of his sacrifice, he can make you white as snow. Like a coat, he can take your scarlet coat and take the stain of your sin and he replaces it with his perfect white coat. He gives us his righteousness when we come to him. From the beginning of time, Jesus in death and resurrection was always about our hope. It was our only hope. God did not expect us to come to him. He always had a plan to come to us. Today, don't be like Ahaz and ignore the sign that God has sent. He is offering to exchange your unrighteousness for his righteousness through Jesus. Number three. If you're in Christ, but you're stuck in a spiritual gloom or a spiritual fog, either because of your sin or because of the world, of, world around you, Jesus is the light that comes through the fog. The spiritual gloom is dispelled forever by the light of the Messiah, Jesus Christ. Today, today God has given us his word and his church. His word is living and active. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. It pierces bone and marrow. In his word, we can behold the light of the glory of God in the face of Jesus. If you are in a spiritual gloom, open God's word and let it shine into your heart. But he also gives us the church. And if you're in a spiritual gloom, it's easy to to pull away from believers. It's easy to isolate ourselves. But what I'm saying is, if you are in a spiritual gloom, push into other believers. The church is made up of all of those who have the Spirit in their hearts. They are given spiritual gifts to build up the body, like teaching, encouragement, wisdom. The church is called to love one another. When we push into the church, even if we are struggling, the Lord will use the body to strengthen our souls. So let me close with this. We can look around the world. We can look around just our region. And we know that the nations are not streaming to God. The nations are not beating their weapons of war into plowshares. The nations are unsettled. The image we see in Isaiah 2 has not come. Jesus is still waiting to return until all of his children have heard the gospel and put their faith in him. It's why on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread and he took the cup and he told us to continually partake it until he returns again. The Lord's Supper, which we're about to take, is a celebration of this suffering servant on the cross. He died so that our sins, every single one of them, the whole body of sin might be brought to nothing, annulled, vanquished forever. 
When God looks at you, if you are in Christ, he does not see your guilt or your sin. He sees Jesus' broken body. In a second, the band's going to come up and we're going to sing one more song. And during that song, we ask you to examine your hearts, confess any sin you have, even if that means leaving your offering and going to make something right with another brother and sister in Christ. But above all, we celebrate what Jesus has done for us. We celebrate that he has bought our sin with his blood and replaced it with his righteousness. We have three tables up front. And during the next song, if everyone would move to the right, you're right, and come this way. And if you're in the middle, you can go on both sides of the table. So when they start to play, if everyone would come to the right and come around, we can get the elements and then I'll come back up here and we'll take them together. Let me pray for us. Lord, it's easy uh, for me to get lost in the Christmas season. And Lord, I just pray that you remind me first and foremost of why we celebrate. It is for your son, this sign, this gift that has come into the world. We pray that we rightly see the sign. We aren't like Ahaz or Israel and we look at other things. We, we pray that we do see you on that holy hill at the top of the mountain, Lord. Show us, reveal us this season that you are good and your law and your uh, commandments are good for our flourishing. And in Jesus' name, amen.